DJ Simulationistas. Sup? With Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin and let's roll. Welcome to DJ Stimulationistas. You're here with Janice Pelaganis and... And Dan Raymer. Sup, Janice? I'm so psyched to have Michael DeVito with us. We've both known Michael for a very long time through our Society for Simulation and Healthcare Adventures. Michael was one of the early officers and was president of the society, and he and I worked on starting the journal Simulation and Healthcare, so an old friend, a good old friend. Wow, I actually didn't know about that, Dan. I didn't know you both st- or were part of starting the journal. Like I say, Yeah, we, I think we were a committee of two, actually, several times negotiating with the publisher to try to start a journal. <laughs> you know, we we worked so well together, actually. We are both critiquing I enough tell that, too. that it, it really worked out very well. It was it was a long journey. We I think we were both very satisfied with how it wound up in the end. So, Michael, I wanted to talk to you specifically about something that I think you're quite well known for, something famous, something you're famous for, which is the development of the rapid response team concept. And I know that we simulate rapid response uh, response scenarios very often, but I, I, I'm not sure I have a, an idea of how to best connect them. And so maybe, maybe if you would talk for a couple minutes about your experience in developing the concept and how you see simulation fitting in. I love talking about this, actually, because this is a situation where I learned so much by doing it. And I have to tell you, when I started, I was a very unwilling participant. My boss, Richard Simmons, is a surgeon, and he was in charge of quality for our organization. And I got put in charge of our code response team. I worked on that for a couple of years, organizing the cart, determining who's going to show up, making sure that the overhead paging system worked. Things like that, getting the monitors and the defibrillators to work, teaching people how to use the defibrillators. And after about two years in it, I was quite pleased with our work. Our survival after cardiac recession rate had dramatically increased. I was pleased and bored. It was time, I thought, for me to move on to another project. So I went to my boss and I said, Dick, this is fixed. Give me something else to do. And he said, what do you mean it was? it's fixed? There was a code just this morning. And I said, I went to it. And he said, tell me about it. And I said, it was a marvel. It was a thing of beauty. People ran to the code. They knew exactly what to do. I was there in 90 seconds, in, inside of 90 seconds, and the patient was being defibrillated just as I got into the room. The room wasn't too crowded. It was really a marvel. And he said, what happened to the patient? And I said, well, the patient died. And he said, you're an idiot. <laughs> the, the, the job... <laughs> <laughs> he said, the job of the code is to make sure that nobody dies that we don't want to die. You, you need to be preventing the codes from occurring in the first place. 
And being an intensivist, I was very confident in my reply that you can't predict when codes are going to occur and you can't stop them from occurring. And he insisted that I didn't know anything. And we had this fight going back and forth for several months until I finally decided to settle the bet. And I started looking at charts. And I specifically looked at the 24 hours preceding the cardiac arrest. Within four charts, I knew he was right. Of the four charts, those first four I looked at, three of them were clearly deteriorating. And the response of the clinicians at our very good organization was not up to what the patient needed. And so we decided to then go back and look at all of the events over a period of one year to try to understand a little bit more about how deterioration occurs prior to codes and was there an opportunity to improve it. And of the, there were 364 in that year sample that we looked at. So we were averaging about one a day at our very busy and very sick hospital. Fully a third of them were easily preventable, either by having a more rapid response or doing something differently in the, in the average care of the patient. We were pondering how to fix this, and one of the things that we noticed was that patients' vital signs were deteriorating for hours prior to the ultimate cardiac arrest, and that there was a sequence of calls that were appropriate to the patient, but not to the situation. Somebody taking the vital signs would pick up the vital signs, would tell the senior nurse, who would tell the head nurse, who would call the intern, who would call the resident. By the time all these phone calls had occurred, the patient would have cardiac arrested in many of these cases. Michael, can I just interrupt? What is the average time? That turnaround time from the vital sign to the person who had the skills to fix the situation was measured in hours. There is a hierarchical ladder, both in the nursing and in the physician arenas, that take time. One of the things that we figured out was when somebody gets critical, time gets short. And if you use the routine mechanisms, routine doesn't work anymore. We decided that we needed to hotwire it and get, if somebody's critically ill, we needed to get a critical doctor, critical care doctor there to the to the bedside. We already had in place a system, our cardiac arrest team. So we just decided to send out the cardiac arrest team before the cardiac arrest. That was a bit difficult to sell to the team because they were already busy. But one of the big selling points was these patients were going to come to the ICUs anyway. And since the biggest complaint most intensivists had is, why didn't you call me sooner? This was an opportunity for them to be called sooner. We got that off the ground. It really did start out slow. There, there wasn't a lot of belief in the system. And as a result, people were reluctant to call. And then the people who were responding were saying, you know, this isn't a cardiac arrest. What do you want me to do? Call me back when the patient is arresting. And we said, well, that's not the yeah. point. <laughs> so we decided to start training people to come out earlier. Now, roughly at around this time, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality put out a call for proposals, and we put out a proposal to train people to do this, to have this type of system in place. John Schaefer, another early adapter and inventor in, in simulation, and I pulled several all-nighters in putting together a proposal that we submitted to ARC. We decided that we were going to create a simulation training program 
to teach people about rapid response, and we were going to implement it across our healthcare system, which at that time had 13 hospitals. During those nights where we were trying to figure out how we're going to train people, we realized that the model that was being used for cardiac arrest, which had to do with a very leadership-based organization, didn't work well when you made it a broader range of possibilities of things that could be going on. And we decided instead of having a cockpit model, we wanted to have a pit crew model where everybody knows what they're supposed to do before they get there. He gave me some coaching, and then I, with with our team down in the simulation center, we created a program for training people based upon the various needs a patient had in a crisis situation had to do with basically the air monitoring and responding to airway, monitoring, responding to uh, circulation abnormalities, and then monitoring data uh, input and creating uh, orders and an efficient um, execution of the orders. So we created our rapid response system and we created the simulation program to support it. I guess after that, it sort of took off. I'm curious, is the, the rapid response team, as you conceived it, in place at that same institution, to your knowledge? Has has it been modified? So the answer is yes and yes. (laughs) We created the the system and we created the educational program, which is still in place. Now, some, it has been modified. Uh, You know, anytime you're teaching things over and over again, you learn. For example, the way I found that the, the leadership model didn't work was we were training people to do rapid response and our our reliability in getting treatments delivered within under 5 minutes was was very low and it was because the first 3 minutes or so were spent in just getting everything organized so we we actually changed the course to be focused on getting the organization done extremely quickly and then once everybody knows what they're doing then you can implement faster and the way we got around that was we we assigned roles and goals, and then people just came into the room and assigned themselves a role, and then they could, then they knew, if you know what your role is, then you know what your your duties are, and you don't even have to wait for direction to do them. That model of, of roles and goals, that still exists. Um, they've modified it because the number of people responding to the codes and who's available to respond uh, changes the skill sets uh, a little bit. And so they're still doing it, but it's it's not exactly the same setup that we designed there almost 20 years ago. Michael, I was I was on the resuscitation committee at our institution probably around the same time that you're talking about. I, I found it to be one of the most inflexible committees I've ever been on. Any small change from the way it always had been done, you know, met resistance. I found it very, very frustrating. I was just a peon on that committee. I wasn't in any sort of leadership position. I'm wondering how you overcame the natural resistance of medicine 
I, I had an advantage over you in that I was the chair of the committee. <laughs> so, ah. so, so, so that does cr- create a flexibility. Now, it's a large committee and it's multidisciplinary. So it, it was far from what Davida says goes. That, that was not um, what was going on. In fact, there was a lot of resistance to it. I, I can tell you a, a senior physician told his house staff and told me that any of his physicians who called for a rapid response would be fired because it indicated their failure to manage the situation and their unwillingness to engage in, in dealing with crises. Uh-huh. Um, which, which, right? So that I mean, that's an incredible place that's to start. That's perfectly. That's yeah. That's, yeah. And so, um, I mean, it, it goes with the the macho <laughs> method of medicine, right? If, what we found was the nurses were the ones who drove this, at least in terms of permissibility. We, we had thought that the nurses might be helpful, but it turned out that they were, the, they were the soul of this. Nurses lose sleep and lose, leave the profession because of, of their perception that somebody died or was, was harmed on their watch. And the, the notion that there was a senior physician available to help when she or he was in distress, you know, worried about their patient, th- this was like an, an archangel that was there oh, for them. Definitely. It, I mean, it, I'm thinking about my practice and how when you go in and you can't articulate why you're not feeling comfortable about a patient and you just want a physician in those late hours of the night to just have a second eye. Um, and feel confident about the care. That's amazing. It was huge. And so we changed the rule quickly that anybody could trigger a um, a rapid response. And in fact, we haven't, I even got a stat page from our paging operator saying, there's a patient here who says the person in the bed next to them is turning blue and they're calling a we call them condition C's. It's calling a condition C. What should I do? I said, call it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know <laughs> and and uh, it turned out that that patient and our system saved the other patient's life. So I think we learned early from patients, families, and nurses that different people perceive the same situation differently. Sounds obvious to us, but when you get in the medical field, we tend to think hierarchically that the physician perceives better than the nurse who perceives better than the nursing assistant and, and, and is better than the student and so on down the line. That, that's not necessarily true. So we, we made the rule if, if, you know, distress is in the eyes of the beholder and the nurses loved it. In fact, we, we got surveyed in the early 2000s by Robert Wood Johnson and Society for, for Critical Care Medicine and the American College of Critical Care Nurses. They wanted to come see what this thing was. They found that 30% of the nurses they interviewed had left our organization and had returned because they felt safer there because of this system. They went someplace else that didn't have it, and they were uncomfortable, and so they came back. That was the power that really drove this forward. There were a lot of resistant physicians, but I think when when they started seeing that they they were seeing severe congestive failure, severe respiratory distress earlier on, that they could they could prevent a lot of the ICU admissions. And so they could spend 30 minutes with the patient and not have to spend three days with the patient. And so it rapidly after that, once we started 
increasing our number of calls, the ICU clinicians really came very much on board as well. Um, and we did have to train it. It does, it does take an entire cycle of residence. And so you're talking three years in medicine and five years in surgery before people come to accept it. So it, there definitely was a transition phase. So, so maybe so, you're um, speaking to, it, to my question now, but what I love about your story is the challenge that Richard Simmons posed to you. So, I mean, here you are, you thought you fixed the code teams, and then now you've created the rapid response team, which which we know have created incredible impact. And I love that he asked you to think more closely about precursors and antecedents that are needed to be addressed to truly achieve the outcomes that you want to achieve. So what things do you see, even with the birth of rapid response teams, or maybe as a result of, of what you've created? that still need to be addressed. One of the things that we started working on and didn't get too far on was the epidemiology of arrest in hospital. And we put out a, a couple of papers regarding specific patient populations or specific locations and the, and the risk for cardiac arrest and the types of occurrences that occur in those places. I think we, we know more about the epidemiology of our community than we do about the hospitals. I don't think any, any hospital in the country can tell you with any assurance, floor by floor, which is the safest, and floor by floor, what types of occurrence you see on that, that type of floor. The ability to, to map enables you to have an ability to prevent that, that you can really make very acute to a certain place. I'll give you an example. One of the residents rotating with us on a, on a safety rotation was a ear, nose, and throat resident, and he, he just thought rapid response was the coolest thing. So he decided he was going to look at you know, his, his population. So he looked at every rapid response called on a patient on the ENT service over the preceding uh, three years, and he found that of those patients, 25% went to the intensive care unit. Another 50% stayed in the same setting but had increased monitoring. Another 25% had no change. And he found that in, in that patient population, within 24 hours, if you had a rep response, you had a 75% chance if you didn't go you had a 75% chance of winding up in the ICU. So if you if you have if you're an ENT patient and you have a rapid response, there's a 80 plus percent chance you're going to be in the ICU within the next 24 hours. That recognition, wow. right? Yeah, it's amazing. It, it wow. that's the kind of information that makes you change practice, right? So they but made the rule. Now you're talking about systems modeling and like big data analysis and potential modeling of the entire system. Are you doing that? Well, actually, this is small data. Big data would be you have the entire patient, a lot of data from the patient's chart, including vital signs, lab values, prior history and you put it into a computer and it crunches who are the, who are the at-risk patients. This is looking at a sub-segment of a population. So all he needed to know was ENT, ENT patient, and did you have a rapid response? It's just two pieces of data. That's really easy to implement and can be done by anybody. You don't need a computer to do that. Now, if you want to do all the different services on the hospital, all the patients on those services, 
you can you can do big data. It will give you a lot of this information. It will not pick up on certain things that may be um, characteristic for a, per, a, a particular patient. So in ENT patients, the most common cause of a rapid response was patient desaturation. The vast majority of the time, it was because of increased thick secretions that the people would go, they'd bag the patient up till they turn pink instead of blue, and then they'd suction out everything. The patient would be fine, and then they would say, okay, looks good, we're, we're done. In that patient population, if you had that sequence of events happen, the majority of those patients wound up having a pneumonia, a very early pneumonia that you didn't see on x-ray, but what would blossom in the next 24 hours or so? So I, I guess in a big data sense, you could factor in ENT service and secretions, character, uh, and yeah. respiratory distress, and all those things. We're going there someday, but right now I think that the easy message is there are certain areas and patient populations that have a characteristic type of event occurring that you can, that you can plan for. And uh, you're right, this is a systems approach. So you make one rule for that system. Another area, we, we discovered that your risk of having a rapid response went up between 2 and 4.4 fold uh, if you take a trip to the uh, radiology department. Whatever your risk was, if you go to, those other, to radiology, your risk goes up. And if you're in an MRI scanner, it's much more dangerous than a CT no scanner. Way. CT That's scanner, amazing. so you have a 4.4 increased risk for MRI, 3.2, I think it is, for CT. And for plain x-rays, it's, a, it's about 2.2. So same patient, same disease, location matters. Michael, what are the, what are the simulation opportunities here? Most of the things you, you've spoken about are medical opportunities. What, what are the things that need to be done in simulation to help you know, the advancement of rapid response? I think the first one Janice touched on is culture change. Many hospitals are approaching codes with simulation. Everybody knows how to run a mega code, and here's how we're going to do a code. And things which aren't a code, there's not a strong culture of how do you do it. And we, we found that bringing our, our entire staff, multidisciplinary staff, in, we trained thousands of professionals. In fact, we would bring in professionals from different organizations to train together. So we might have in a, in a typical course, which would have 16 or so people in it, there might be representatives from four different hospitals in there. So we were teaching teamwork and what a rapid response looked like. Doing that for our large population created an expectation and facilitated the culture change that occurred in the hospital. If we hadn't done simulation, I don't think we'd be talking about rapid response now the, the way that we are. It, it really helped us move the ball forward. So, so the first is culture change. The second is the, the quality of the response. And people will only call if you help. And I think early on when we started, the rapid response team was lovely to have them there, but they, they really weren't expert in dealing with the types of crises that we were seeing. And so putting together a simulation program that focused on the things you most commonly see in rapid response really helped improve the proficiency of the responders. My guess is if you did those two things in hospitals that have 
poor utilization of rapid response, it would dramatically improve it because many people just don't believe it's useful. So creating a culture and creating an expertise, I think, are essential for that. We learned in simulation by running these things over and over. You know, training code teams is, is one thing. That, that tends to be a smaller volume. When you, so if you're going to do rapid response, you really have to train everybody in the building. The patient techs need to know what a rapid response looks like and when they're supposed to call and how they make the call, what's the telephone number even. When you do this over and over again, you gain some insight in what works well and what does not work well. And I think we were able to fast track the systems approach to rapid response. We, we could see things in microcosm much more easily. We could also get people to focus less on, we, we don't even run cardiac arrests in most of our simulations for rapid response. We, we, we have it embedded in there, but it's only 20% of the or two of the mm -hmm. 10 different scenarios that we run. So it's, we're really emphasizing on the distress. I know you've been working on um, on some technology around rapid response. Can you tell us about that? I, I think you're talking about monitoring, uh, but I'd like to say a little bit about simulation too. <laughs> sure. Pitt and CMU put together a grant for gaming for rapid response. They particularly like the model we had since our roles and goals and where people stand in our, our model. They thought it might work well in a gaming application. And we, we made a networked game with up to 20 players on it that could, they were uh, linked through the internet so they could be 20 people anywhere in the world. And everybody would choose an avatar, and you'd have to go in and manage a situation. And the the things that you could move around were IVs, uh, backboard, uh, ambu bag, and providing respiration, chest compression. There was a crash cart that you could pull things off of. We found uh, a fascinating thing. When, when people didn't do well in a real live simulation, they tended to be, oh my God, you know, I did this and you should have done that. It's kind of this bickering. But when they watch it on a simulation that's a, a desktop and see the, the people moving around, they, see, they all see the obstruction here and you didn't do this, you weren't helping me with that. They saw it in a different way. Every time we ran that game, First thing they people said was, we want to try it again. Let, let's do it again. Just reset it. Let's do it again. Because it wasn't them, I guess. It was an avatar there. There was no, there was no guilt um, and there was no defensiveness. They just wanted another shot. And a lot of things that we were training people about, how do you communicate and how do you cooperate? What, what little teams you need to build? You know, you, the person managing the airway has to be working with someone who's going to give them the equipment. They, they figured all this out on their own. And so we learned two things from that. One is you don't need to have an initial didactic, which I think many simulation programs start off with, is here's what we're expecting of you in some degree. We, didn't, we could just cut that out. We could just sit people down at the game and let them play. And the other thing was when they then went to, we linked that gaming uh, which they would do for about 30 to 45 minutes. And then, and they could do in that 30, 45 minutes, they could do between six and 10 run-throughs. Then when they did their first simulation in the larger sense, where they're actually going to, to a simulation, they, instead of starting out at the 20, below 20% 20 in 
terms of their quality, they would start out at 65 or 70 percent. So they they were actually fairly proficient in the real simulation world as opposed to the to the desktop simulation world. So so that was one thing that we started, and I'm I'm not involved in that anymore. But I think it is so important for us to to get better gaming applications for code response because I think it even if we don't train people how to physically do everything, they will be better for it, and it's so much easier to do. So that was one thing. And the, the second thing is the biggest barrier to getting people to survive deterioration, turns out, is not in the response team. It's in the recognition team. And I mentioned earlier that you need to train everybody in the organization on rapid response, not just the responders, because the, the biggest gap is in the detection of abnormality and the recognition that it's a critical value. We first saw that at a consensus conference that we had in 2008. It was published in 2010. And we realized uh, then that the monitoring capabilities of most hospitals is woefully inaccurate. You are great if you were in the ICU or in the emergency room or in the operating room, but elsewhere you were uh, basically there was no continuous monitoring at all back back then, with the exception of EKG, which is not really good at detecting deterioration. It's very good at detecting arrhythmia. It's very good at detecting death, but it's not great at picking up rapid respiratory rate, for example, or changing consciousness. I became very involved in improving non-invasive monitoring, the type of monitoring that you could do on any floor in a hospital that would be uh, low cost, easy to apply, very reliable, high signal to noise ratio, so that when when the alarm alarms, it's alarming for something real and not and not fake. And I I think in the decade that's passed since then, that monitoring non-invasive monitoring has just tremendously improved. It's it's amazing the stuff that's available now, that enables us to reliably detect people becoming into danger. And uh, a lot of them even have some decision systems to let people know what to what to do next. Um, so beautiful. we are on the forefront, I think, of a new era in medicine. Well, Michael, I, when I think of technology being reliable and consistent and robust, I think you know the beauty is that it decreases cognitive load, it makes awareness more immediate, and in doing so, it can also decrease critical thinking, the phrase treating the monitor, not the patient. So how do you balance this? Because you're essentially creating habits of reliance, which could then lead to over-reliance, can be thin extra barrier critical thinking. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I have two thoughts on that. One is you're assuming that people are already skilled and have good critical thinking skills. Um, I think <laughs> if, if that was the case, we wouldn't have one out of three patients having distress resulting in code, right? I, so I, I think that that notion of people are currently skilled is, is not accurate. And if anything, improving emphasis on detection and recognition of critical illness and what to do next is going to improve their skill level. So, so that's one thing is I don't think we're good as good as we need to be to start. The second is I love the movie Apollo 13. They had checklists galore on that thing for everything. And then when they were trying to figure out how we're going to fix it, where did they go to? They went into the simulator and they tried it again and again and again until they could get it to work. And 
there was in that movie, you could see the critical thinking that was involved in the system design, and then there was critical thinking in the design application. So those people up in the spaceship, they were figuring out, this system isn't going to work. How are we going to do that? What are we going to do next? Let's figure it out here. Their, their critical thinking skills were enhanced by the ability to have simulation. It, it wasn't deteriorated by it. There are now handheld devices. So you can monitor a patient and you have a handheld device and it will automatically calculate an, an early warning score. And it will tell you whether you need to do uh, anything else next. It'll say something like your early warning score is three or four. We recommend that you do such and such. And it's not saying that you have to do that, of course, but it helps people recognize something needs to be done as a, as a first step. You know, when you're talking about crises, every moment matters, and not acting within minutes um, as opposed to hours can result in death. Most of the rapid response indicators, whether you're using a MUSE score or a single parameter trigger, indicate the increased probability of death within the next one hour. If, if it takes you an hour to get everybody there or to figure out if you need to call other people there, You've, you've lost a, a large percentage of your patients already. Well, thanks, Michael. I so appreciate your perspective on the critical thinking aspect versus technology, because I know that is, it's always a hot topic in healthcare it, education. It is. It, they're related. You know, books <laughs> do kind of the same thing, right? I mean, I, I don't know any any intern <laughs> not walking around in his, with a book in his pocket <laughs> so they can reference and learn up. These, these are enhancers of decision-making skills. Um, it does sound like it would be a great simulation research project because some some of the thinking patterns with and without aids are easier to study in a laboratory setting than in a naturalistic environment. So testing whether people uh, get trapped, become overly dependent on the aids make bad decisions with or without the aids that that would be easy you know relatively straightforward to study in a simulated environment i couldn't agree with you more uh, you know it's learning about this stuff in the real world is there's so much going on that it makes it really difficult to study i mean the reason we we wound up modifying our course in rapid response so frequently was because we were doing this over and over and over again and, you know, we, we could see that there was something going on. In fact, we used to place bets about whether a team was going to succeed or not. Are they going to do You know, we, like, put down 50 cents. We did this in the control booth. Don't tell anybody I said that we did that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and we found out that we were really good at it. But, but nobody could explain why, what, what it was about the people in the first 60 seconds that would tip us off that at three or five minutes they would be have a successful thing. And we, we just couldn't pin it down, and we just started working on it. What, what's happening here? And then we, we realized that the common denominator was organization. And it, it didn't matter whether the organization was from a strong individual who just sort of took over or whether it was good organization by a bunch of people collaborating together. Either, either way, if you, if you were organized at 60 seconds, you had a greater than 80% probability of, of delivering a shock in under three minutes or if you needed to give some blood or 
call-outs, stroke codes, and any of those things. All those were better at three minutes if in the first one minute if you got organized. And so that gets back to your point about doing things in the simulator to figure out how are people thinking, how are they organizing, is way easier to do. I mean, you can just repeat it over and over again. And, and I, I think you're right. It, it would be a fascinating study and an important study to do and definitely feasible, much more feasible in the simulated world than in, a, in the real world. And would we, would we love to see it published in the journal that we started? <laughs> I, I think okay. our journal would be the perfect place to publish it. <laughs> You know, what I love about what you're saying, Michael, which I just want to kind of tie up, is I, I think it's fascinating because usually it takes solving a problem to move simulation forward, and I think what you've spoken to is that simulation moved solutions forward. And then, you know, one thing that we look at when we're looking at people that apply for systems accreditation and simulation is that there are these closed loops within the system, and the things that you've found in simulation then feed into new kind of programs within your system and just constantly creating these loops, including publishing in your journal. I think you're exactly right, Dennis. There's, there's a lot of recognizing that's a problem and then saying, gee, we, we should fix this. So, so we, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Too. So we, we were training teams and we, we found that we ha were having a problem with getting the teams to be called on time. We decided to do our simulations in situ. We'd go up into the hospital and we'd run the codes. And we, we found that the, the people on the floors, they didn't know the phone number. <laughs> you know, they didn't know any of the criteria. They didn't know that the criteria were posted on the walls all over the place. And so we made a second course. So we had a, a course for the responders, and then we made a course for the callers. Um, and then we, we made a third course to link the rapid response team and the code team responsibilities. So we found each time that we found a, a gap in our ability to do something, we actually found a simulation way for uh, approaching it and effectively resolving it. That's fantastic. So this has been a really exciting discussion, Michael. I've heard you speak several times, and I'm quite aware of the whole rapid response movement, but to hear your thought process and your experience in developing it, especially using simulation as part of that, has been really exciting to me. So, so I want to I thank you for uh, enlightening us. Oh, thank you. I, I, you know, I should add. I, I wish I could say I was the first. I, I was the first in uh, in our hemisphere, but there was a group of three different teams in Australia that were working together, and uh, they were they were just ahead of us uh, in terms of getting this started. But every place, particularly in the early years, that started doing this, every one of them had simulation linked to it in terms of teaching the responders what to do and teaching the callers what to do. I, when I said earlier, rapid response wouldn't be what it is if it wasn't for the ability to do simulation effectively. That is, I stand by that. That's That's been an international phenomenon. And now rapid response is around the world, literally everywhere. And every country, every place is linking simulation to it. And I, I think it's become kind of a sine qua non for successfully managing deteriorating patients. Janice, sounds like that's what's up. 
Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for joining. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. DJ Simulationistas, what's up? Is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.